Hi, my name is Sophie, um, and our first reading today is going to be from Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 to 13. And I'll just give you a moment to find that. Okay, starting at verse 4. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. The second Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of the grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrated the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell the others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. 
I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. You can find an outline to today's sermon on the church website on the Sunday page, so you can see where we're going. You also notice that there's a number up on the screen that you can text any questions to, and we'll have a bit of question time after uh, the sermon, and uh, any questions we don't get to uh, will be addressed on our podcast. Two Wednesdays ago, I'm there at James Roost with my Year 7 and 8 scripture class. And a student puts his hand up. Mr. Chen, why did Jesus die when he did? Now, on one level, the answer to that question is quite simple. Why did Jesus die when he did in 32 CE? Well, that's the point in history when the religious leaders of the day arrested Jesus and had him killed by the Roman authorities. And that was part of my answer to my scripture student. But of course, an answer like that raises more questions. What led up to that point being the point when that happened? And in today's passage, here in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we see a key moment in that lead-up. If you're new to reading the Bible, the smaller numbers that we see in the top left corner are what we call verse numbers. And we're here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. It reads as follows. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Friends, this is in many ways a turning point in Matthew's gospel because the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were experts in God's law, have begun a conspiracy, a plot to murder Jesus. And over the next few months into April of next year, the plan is to explore chapters 12 to 20 of Matthew's gospel as we see how he tells the story of Jesus' life on the road towards his death. Today, I want to help us explore this question. Why do the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus? Because answering this question is going to help us understand what led up to this point in 32 CE, when the religious leaders of the day arrested Jesus and had him killed by the Roman authorities. 1,988 years ago. And can I submit to you that the answers are profound and compelling. If we truly understand what could possibly have incited upstanding moral figures of the day to get involved in a conspiracy for murder. But to do that, we're going to need God's help. So would you please join with me as I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We ask that you would illuminate our minds to understand your word and transform us by your spirit to live in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus? Point one. Point one, Jesus and his message confronts. You know, at some pause, we believe in working through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, section by section, which is why we're picking up in chapter 12, because we've actually been working steadily through Matthew's gospel over the last few years. Now, some of us weren't here, some of us were here, but all of us could do with a bit of a refresher. Uh, Viv and I are currently watching a TV show, and at the start of every episode, there's a previously on so-and-so. 
Well, take this as our own version of previously in Matthew's Gospel. In 2017, we worked our way through Matthew chapters 1 to 4, and Dave and Sam helped us answer this question, have you seen the king? Because Jesus began to travel around and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven had come near. Now, the reason he could do that is because that king is Jesus himself. Then in 2018, we worked our way through Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Uh, Gary and Sam helped walk us through the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, and implored us to seek first the kingdom. What we saw was that the kingdom of heaven is for the weary and the burdened, the gentle and the humble, those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, knowing our own unworthiness because of our sin. Jesus and his message directly confronts us. And last year, in 2019, we saw this through Matthew chapters 8 to 11, as Jack and Gary and Dave guided us through as we saw kingdoms collide. Because we saw clashes between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the religious leaders and of sickness and of death and of sin. You know, we're living in a time where many in Western societies are bemoaning the fact that Christian influence is waning. But can I submit to you that ever since the time of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, rightly understood, has never been a comfortable bedfellow of any culture or any nation or any generation or any culture. In fact, the opposition that Christians experience is a constant reminder that our kingdom the kingdom of God is not of this world. Before the kingdom is fully established and fully realized, the removal of any opposition to Christianity will likely signal a capitulation to culture rather than the transformation of culture. We should not expect to be liked and accepted because Jesus and his message confronts. But it isn't a harsh or brutal confrontation. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 11, uh, just a bit before this section that we read in chapter 12. From verse 28, uh, Jesus is speaking here. Uh, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's a gentle confrontation where Jesus is calling bruised and battered and fragile souls to find rest. And it's into this context that we come to Matthew chapter 12, with the latest confrontation with the Pharisees, no less. It, and, and this time, this confrontation is what leads us to verse 14 and the plot to have Jesus killed. So, point one, why did the Pharisees plot to have Jesus killed? Point one, Jesus and his message confronts. So let's come now to point two, as we focus more pointedly at the passage at hand. Point two, Jesus threatens their authority. Because having just called people to come to him to, to find rest at the end of chapter 11, we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 12 from verse 1. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Uh, Stories of Jesus' activities on the Sabbath are found in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel, littered throughout. But this is the first and only Sabbath interaction in Matthew's Gospel. The first and only one. And I think that's significant. I think it's because this section is pivotal in understanding not only who Jesus is, but what his message is about, what his kingdom is like. Now, for some of us, we may have never heard this term Sabbath before. What is Sabbath? Well, Sabbath was a principle of working for six and resting for one. It was a sign and symbol of God's Old Testament covenant through Moses, uh, working for six days and resting on the seventh, Saturday. Uh, sowing fields and harvesting crops for six years, and then letting the lie land, uh, the land lie unplowed on the seventh. Tongue twister. We saw this in Exodus 23. The Sabbath day or the Sabbath year was to be a time of social concern, offering justice and relief to all of God's people and all of God's land and all of God's animals with a particular focus on justice for the poor. Justice for the slave, justice for the foreigner, that they would find refreshment. It was also a day to honor God and to direct worship towards God, knowing that this cycle of land and rest and work and time was built into the fabric of creation itself. I mean, after all, God created in six and rested on the seventh. Breaking the Sabbath principle of ceasing from work was no small matter. In the Old Testament laws, the death penalty was to be given to anyone who intentionally violated it. And so, seeing the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, the Pharisees say in verse 2, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. How does Jesus respond? Well, let me go through it in three groups. Firstly, verses 3 to 4. Jesus asks them in verse 3, Haven't you read referring to a story in the Old Testament when David was anointed as king but hadn't been inaugurated yet. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. You see, David was on the run to protect his life because the current king at that time, King Saul, was out to get him. And so David and his companions were on the run and they were hungry on the Sabbath day. David and his companions end up eating special ceremonial bread, which was only for the priests. Now, in pointing to this story, Jesus is making a really bold claim. Because like David, Jesus was anointed as king, but hasn't been inaugurated yet. That is still to come. And since the Old Testament didn't condemn David and his companions for breaking a law for the sake of satisfying hunger, Neither should the Pharisees condemn Jesus and his disciples for breaking a law in satisfying hunger. Secondly, verses 5 to 6. Jesus refers once again to the Old Testament, where we see that even though the Sabbath day was to be one in which no work is done, the priests were still called to serve and offer worship for the people. In fact, Jesus says that they were desecrating the Sabbath by fulfilling their Sabbath duty. And yet they were innocent before God. 
because serving in the temple as God's priests was far more important than them adhering to the Sabbath. Religious people love critiquing when strict adherence to rules is broken. But Jesus drops another, another bomb here in verse 6. Did you see it? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Friends, that something is Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple. And so Jesus can determine which are justified violations of the non-work part of the Sabbath. Because he is greater. Thirdly, verses 7 to 8. Uh, Jesus says that the Pharisees have condemned the innocent because his disciples are innocent. You see, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, God desires kindness and concern for those who are in need. That's mercy. Not just strict adherence to rituals and rules. That's sacrifice. In fact, Jesus had quoted this part, uh, which actually comes from Hosea, a few chapters earlier in chapter 9, with the Pharisees as well. And his whole point is this, you don't get it. You still don't get it. The disciples were hungry and in need of food, so they ate. They have done nothing wrong. Jesus says that the Pharisees have missed the point of what God desires. And he has authority to say such things. Because Jesus himself, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a profound claim to make. Jesus is the Lord of this principle that God had directly instituted in the Old Testament. A hint that Jesus is equal to God himself. Jesus has shown that the Pharisees were wrong to criticize his disciples because in picking the grain and eating it, they had done nothing wrong. Jesus is a threat to their authority. And this threat comes in close. Because in verse 9, Jesus goes directly into their synagogue. Do you see that there? It's not just any synagogue, it's their synagogue. This is a direct confrontation into the very land that they ought to have authority over themselves. Jesus enters and in verse 10, he sees a man with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees are still in view here as they're looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. It didn't work the first time, they're coming in for round two. And so they ask Jesus if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And in verses 11 to 12, we see that Jesus points out that if an animal fell into a pit on the Sabbath, it would be lawful to take hold of it and lift it out. We saw in Exodus 23 how God has always had a concern for the way humans treat animals. In fact, Proverbs says that the one who mistreats animals is an evildoer. How much more a human? If it would be lawful to help a sheep on the Sabbath, how much more a human being? Therefore, verse 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so in verse 13, Jesus completely restores the man's hand by healing it. The result? Well, having gone into the synagogue of the Pharisees in verse 9, the Pharisees go out of the synagogue in verse 14. They come out because Jesus has more authority than they do. 
He is a clear and present threat to their authority. This is the reason that Matthew gives us for the Pharisees' plot to kill Jesus. It's not directly that Jesus has broken the Sabbath and he is guilty before the Old Testament law of death. Excuse me, guilty and deserving of the Old Testament law of death. If that were the case, then, well, later on, when Jesus is brought before the chief priests and the teachers of the law, before he dies, in Matthew chapter 26, they could have brought this up. But they didn't. In fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, verses 57 to 60, that they couldn't find anything against Jesus to put him to death. Although, interestingly, John's gospel makes clear that one of the reasons the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus was because of matters related to the Sabbath. You can read about that in John chapter 5. But Matthew does not portray things that way. And we need to be careful readers of the Bible, knowing that God has given us four gospels, and they have unique voices on the same blessed Lord. In fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 that it was out of self-interest or envy that the Jewish leaders and the crowd hand Jesus over to be killed. What leads the Pharisees to plot, to convene, to scheme, to get Jesus killed is that he was a threat to their own authority. Just like King Herod in Matthew chapter when the Magi came and wanted to worship the king of the Jews, this is a clear and present danger to their power and privilege and positional authority. And they want desperately to remove him. Does that sound extreme to you? Consider this. Who has authority over your time, your land, your work, your rest. What if I told you that you have absolute authority over none of it? Because that's the claim that Jesus is making. And the gut reaction of myself is to scowl at that. Why? And the gut reaction of our world is to say, why should Jesus be the Lord of these things? Surely I should have the right to choose what I do with my time. I should have the right to choose what to do with my work. I should have the right to choose what to do with my land and my rest. Can you begin to see just something of why reckoning with the authority of Jesus could lead people to want to get rid of him and have nothing to do with him? In fact, that's what many of us try and do when we realize that Jesus' authority has claim over the entire fabric of creation, including every space of our lives. This is the state of our hearts. It's what the Bible calls sin. And we are all guilty of it, you and me. Because Jesus and his message confronts us and he threatens our authority over our own lives. And God knows it. But lest we only focus on the human sin element, we need to have another answer to this question of why the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus. We need to set our sights a bit higher. So come with me to point three. Point three, Jesus' planned death brings glory. Because we see in verse 15 that Jesus is aware of the plot to kill him, but he knows it's not his time to die yet. And so he withdraws from that place, even though he continues to do good, continues to heal, continues to do what he was doing. 
but it's not his time to die yet. He does warn others not to tell others about him. He does warn them not to tell others about him. And in verses 17 to 21, we see these remarkable words when Matthew points us to this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42, written hundreds of years earlier. Because you see, the Jewish people in the time of Isaiah, they were looking for justice, relief, hope, justice from oppression and abuse, relief from exile and displacement and sickness and decay, and hope, hope for an eternal rest, a rest that would last and not be dependent on whoever the latest king was or how the kingdom was going in any particular generation. Hope that would last. In verses 17, excuse me, 18 and 20, we see foretold how this servant will proclaim justice and will bring justice. In verse 20 as well, we see this imagery used for how this servant will bring relief. You know, a reed is a stiff plant, but once it's bruised, it's really easy to snap it. This servant will not break a bruised reed. And a candle with a flickering light would be so easy to just breathe on and put out. This servant will not snuff out a smoldering wick. And in verse 21, we see how this servant offers hope to the nations. Indeed, it's in the name of this servant that hope is found. And Matthew tells us, what he is telling us in the context of Jesus, knowing that his death is being plotted, is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these words, this prophecy. And in fact, it is through Jesus' death that all of it is going to be accomplished. And these glorious realities of justice and relief and hope will be brought. Flip on a few chapters over with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, this will also be part of our series when we're looking through Matthew chapters 12 to 20. Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. You see, Jesus was not surprised by this. In God's sovereign purposes, the plotting of Jesus' death was planned and purposed as the road to glory. He must go and suffer and be killed because he must follow through with the mission that his heavenly Father has set for him. A mission of a death that leads to glory. For in Jesus' death, he shows that God is absolutely committed to judging oppressors and abusers. In Jesus' death, we see how God fulfills his promises to bring restoration from exile and displacement, securing a place in God's kingdom that will never fade and, well, in which people will never be cast out numbering the days of sickness and decay because they will not last. In Jesus' death, there is an eternal hope for the future as he bears the judgment 
the just wrath of God that we deserve for rejecting the king. Indeed, in Jesus's death, he accomplishes a true Sabbath rest for God's people who are longing for a glorious future of rest and refreshment. Jesus's death must happen and the Pharisees must plot it because it is what God has planned to bring glory, glory to Jesus and to his followers. And so we've seen three answers to this question of why do the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus? Firstly, Jesus and his message confronts. Secondly, Jesus threatens their authority. And thirdly, Jesus's death was planned to bring glory. Now, as we conclude, let's have a think about how we might follow Jesus. You know, in the same chapter here, Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 to 26, Jesus says that if anyone wants to be his disciple, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. A meaning that they are to die to themselves, die to their own desires, die to their own dreams, die to their own expectations, die to their own interests, and die to their own authority and follow Jesus. And in this series through Matthew, we're going to see how death and glory isn't just for Jesus. Glory through death is also for us. Dying to self to gain the glorious kingdom of heaven. And here's a first step. Come to the Lord Jesus. You know, through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has been inaugurated as king. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who has absolute authority, and he commands you to come to him, to seek his kingdom, to give up living for yourself, and to receive his love by accepting his rule and reign. But don't forget what we've also seen, because this Lord is gentle and humble. Are you weary and burdened by life? Jesus says to come to him and he will give you rest. If you'd like to do that, you can get in contact with us or you can speak with your friend or family member who invited you today or shared this link with you to a world feeling beaten and battered and bruised with the realities of this imperfect life in this imperfect world. Jesus bids you come to him. Secondly, We know that this side of uh, the death of Jesus, God's principle of the Sabbath, well, God's people are no longer obligated to keep it. Uh, To come to Jesus is to come to the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, the one who offers us justice and relief and hope for our souls here and now into the deepest fiber of our being. Uh, But we also know that he will offer this and give us this fully realized one day when he returns and we're resurrected into the eternal kingdom of new creation here on earth. We await an ultimate Sabbath rest still to come. But as we wait, the world around us feeds us lots of narratives about where ultimate rest is to be found. Every advertisement is is a story about where you will find your ultimate rest, the solution to all your problems what will give us a deep sense of inner peace and satisfaction and contentment in our life. So what might that be for us? Where, where are we in danger of listening more to what our culture or those around us 
might be saying about finding ultimate rest? Could it be that ultimate rest is to make sure you're, you're dating someone by 22 and married before you're 25? Even then, you're pushing it. Get married and you'll find your ultimate rest. Could it be that ultimate rest is supporting this political party or that view, viewpoint? Because that's what's going to make the world a better place. That's what's going to make our society right. That's what's going to give us ultimate rest. Could it be to own your own property or maybe a beach house up or down the coast? Or at least to be able to service a home loan? That's where you'll find your ultimate rest. And in many ways, these are good things. A lot of these things are good. But they can't be ultimate. They cannot be the ultimate rest. You know, the default expectation for the Christian life is not marriage. Marriage is a good thing, but it is an option. And people who've gotten married will tell you it isn't some ultimate stage of rest and refreshment, a higher state of existence of peace and satisfaction. Only God can offer that eternal rest. Marriage is not the answer. And it strikes me that political discussion often grabs hold of language like healing, restoring the soul, providing lasting relief, and securing your future. These are good concepts, but they do not belong ultimately to the realm of the political parties or the political viewpoints. Don't get me wrong. We should all care about politics because we serve a Lord who makes the ultimate political claim, he is Lord. We all should care about politics. But no political party and no political viewpoint can fully realize and implement the justice and the relief and the hope that our world desperately needs. And we need to be careful of being caught up into fixed and immovable notions of how one side of politics or one party is the Christian vote, as if one human institution here and now is the one to truly bring us justice and hope and relief. It strikes me that some of my friends who have fully embraced right-wing politics or left-wing politics are hardly even Christian, if not non-Christian. My friends who've fully embraced a right-wing view of politics, they may say they're Christians, but they're more worldly and Western than biblical. My friends who've fully embraced left-wing politics well, few of them even want to hear about the name of Jesus anymore. Or at least their conception of Christianity is far removed from the Bible. Do you know people like that? I'm just speaking about my experience. Yes, we do want to be informed. Yes, we do want to get involved. Yes, we do want to discuss how best to achieve true human ends and the common good in this imperfect world and life but it can't bring you the eternal rest that only God can bring. So be careful. Be careful. And owning a property, especially in aiming towards this at a younger age, is far from some sort of rest and relaxation. In fact, at that point, that's when the hardship, in one sense, really begins, when being a wage slave really begins. And it can catch up to you in, in becoming a deeply distressed or distracted man or woman. Bringing disappointment if it doesn't happen quickly. Stress, how are we going to do this? And realization of an incredible debt that needs to be paid when it does. And don't get me wrong, owning property is not a bad thing. But it isn't ultimate rest. 
If the assumption that you need to purchase property or to form a property portfolio goes unexamined, then a whole lot of other choices will be made for you before you even know it. Your generosity. Whether you could ever even consider a ministry apprenticeship. How much time you need to actually work. Whether, if you're married, both need to work. And it makes it so much easier to come up with reasons to skip growth group or Sunday or to no longer desire to serve at all. Trying to find our ultimate rest in things can be exhausting and demeaning and very disappointing. And you can imagine how we may want to compromise our Christian beliefs and commitments to growing in our faith. Dating a non-Christian, if only it'll mean getting married, because I've waited too long. Or skipping church until finally getting that promotion. Yes, I know I shouldn't be skipping church, but I really, really need to work on Sundays. You can imagine how we could easily fall into vices in order to find temporary rest and escape from the world. Vices like gaming addiction or gambling or alcohol or affairs or pornography for women and for men. But it doesn't have to be this way. Because in Jesus, we see that our ultimate rest isn't a principle or a day or a practice, or an achievement, or a position. It's a person. It's a relationship with the Lord of the Sabbath himself. The only one who can ultimately give us justice, relief, and hope for our souls into the deepest, innermost core of who we are. And who will one day offer it to us eternally. And so, set your sights higher and further. Hope for the eternal rest yet to come. And can I suggest that we need to talk about this? You need to talk about this. We need to give up presenting a facade that everything is okay. And we need to have conversations with one another because these topics are complicated. A lot of us are very much in the midst of them in realizing that life is at an unsustainable pace. We need to have conversations with one another Rebuke, correct, train one another, examine our lives here and now, and ask each other hard questions. Are we living with Jesus as our Lord over our time, over our work, over our land, over our rest? Where are you letting something or someone else rule and set the narrative of what you have to do, or what you have to choose, or what you have to buy, or what you have to have? Do the work of lovingly helping one another set our sights higher and further. And for some of us, radical surgery may be necessary. But in God's kindness, we may come to help each other experience just something even more of that rest that Jesus has already accomplished for us in his death on the cross. Hope for the eternal rest. Thirdly and finally then, What we've seen as well is that Jesus commends mercy rather than sacrifice, the priority of showing kindness and concern for people in need. And this interaction with the Pharisees shows us this, that that we're never to take a rest from doing good. It's one of those strange things about this rest that Jesus offers. The call to keep doing good because that is part of the hope 
and justice and relief that he offers. Live mercifully, seek to grow in it at all times and in all places. As tired as many of us may be, as stressed, as unsure of what tomorrow holds in this global pandemic, stay committed to serving and loving. We don't take a rest from doing good. For some of us, it could mean actually coming to church and staying to chat. For some of us, it could mean filling out the serving survey and thinking about ways to volunteer your time at church. For some of us, it may mean continuing to serve in kids' ministry or youth ministry or as a growth group leader, even though this year has been extremely tired, tiring. It could mean reaching out to some members and inviting them over or, or inviting them out to encourage one another in your faith, especially those who've really struggled to connect to God vertically and to one another horizontally in this time. Because we never take a rest from doing good. Just like our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the gentle and humble King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he does have absolute authority. We pray that we would embrace the rest that he offers. In his name we pray. Amen.